Welcome to the You, Me, We Amplified Podcast, interviews with women leading social impact. Hosted by Suzanne F. Stevens, international speaker, author, and multi-award-winning social entrepreneur and founder of the You, Me, We Social Impact Group. Enjoy the wisdom that will be a compass on how to make your contribution count for you, your organization, and your community. We are live today on Facebook at You, Me, We Movement and LinkedIn, my personal page. So welcome to those who are able to join us live. But if you're not able to join us live, you'll be able to watch the recording and future engagements, post questions on our guest exclusive wisdomexchangetv.com page. You'll also be able to find over 100 interviews in over 25 countries with women internationally leading a social impact. I am so excited to have our guest today. Jenny has worked and experienced in child welfare and children mental health and is very passionate about Indigenous social work. She developed and co-coordinated the first of its kind programming for Indigenous youth in care to ensure they receive culturally sensitive and culturally appropriate identity-based healing opportunities. Jenny believes it is paramount that youth have access to the land, culture, elders, and traditional healers. Birth from this calling, Jenny developed workshops that educate the professional services Indigenous youth and their families. She provides this training on many different platforms throughout the province of Ontario. Through this work, Jenny became a truth and reconciliation specialist, educator, advocate, and motivational speaker and operates her private practice, Redstone Snake Woman, as a psychotherapist and Indigenous healer. Coming to you from close to Ottawa, Ontario, welcome, Jenny. It's great to have you here. (laughs) We must start with your last name, which I've always known as Sutherland. (laughs) I'm so happy you're using your Indigenous name. Can you tell us what that means? I'm still legally a Sutherland and a proud member of the Sutherland clan up in Moosonee, Moosonee First Nation, like I just mentioned. But Sutherland is a Scottish name and I am Cree and English German. There's no Scottish in me. So it was just heavy on me that it was only a part of the colonial naming system. As a healer, I'm constantly involved in my own healing. And I felt like I needed to do some work on this colonial wound and reclaim my power, my identity as an Indigenous woman. And that meant indigenizing this name. So a lot of people are doing this. This is different from our spirit names, our native names, which mine is Redstone Snake Woman, Miko Asenikanibikishkwe. This is our last names. And and normally we were known through our clan systems. And uh, this is something that's new. I'm still exploring Ancestry.ca actually to just see how far back this goes. But Shawanuk is the Cree way of saying Sutherland. Shawanuk. Yeah, Sutherland is is Old Norse. It's a regional name for means in the Southland. So it's about the region, the territories that's south to the Shetland Islands and Orkney area in uh, 
in Scotland. For me, it, it made sense. I'm living in the South. I'm in the Ottawa area now. I'm far South from my territory, which is 15 hours North of here. So it mm -hmm. felt right for me. I'm the only one in my family that decided that to do that. And that's okay. Some families went completely over to different names, like the Smalls became the Capuchichis as example. I thought that was just so awesome. So I approached my family to see if they wanted to join me and they're proud Sutherlands and that's okay. This was my way of moving forward and healing, but still paying respect and love to Sutherland because it's basically just translation thing. Keep in mind, it is such an, an important decision. And, and what I just want to emphasize to the audience is the healing part that you're emphasizing that as a Cree woman that you're going through and also acknowledging that you want to embrace your heritage and the systems haven't allowed us to do that. So I just want to congratulate you on doing that because you've just done this. You were on a panel conversation with me in June 30th. <laughs> You're on a panel conversation with me and Southern just rolled off my uh, tongue, but I look forward to learning how to say a lot of Indigenous words more effectively. So this is will be one of many, I'm sure. So what was the catalyst for you starting Redstone Snake Woman, which is a fabulous name as well? Thank you. When I received my spirit name, which was only four or five years ago now, our spirit names are the reason we're here. My elder explained, you really step into your medicine when you realize what the spirit world has intended for you with your time here in this human. And when I learned that name, not only was I so excited to be embracing a ceremony that was pretty much denied to me because we've been so colonized that the ceremonial way of life was oppressed for so long. So part of what I do is bringing back the ceremonies again. But when I realized I was Redstone Snake Woman and, and who she is and why she's here, it really launched me forward more in my career. I was already on the path when I was took on this job of creating the Indigenous Treatment Program, which was, if this is a foster care program that is committed to providing treatment-based care for youth, then I thought for Indigenous youth, then we should be bringing back our elders and traditional healers and therefore ceremonies again and birthed all through that. And so... I was in, in the mode already of doing these things, but then it was an affirmation. You're supposed to be moving in this area. You're supposed to be helping to reconnect, not just these youth to these ceremonies in the land, but I think all people of all colors and also to be speaking up more. As I learn more about snake medicine, it is speaking. It is being a public speaker. I was very shy and nervous about that initially. And it's just now anything that makes me feel fearful, I dive in because those are also the things I'm really passionate about. And that's why I'm scared to do it. And yeah, it really, from there, I, uh, I birthed Redstone Snake Woman. And so all these new programs that I was developing in workshops, I'm like, I, I need a business to start launching this myself. And these were all ideas for me as the visionary behind them. So I had to make that, move that into more of a professional field. And you're, you also do a lot of volunteering with children welfare. And can you tell me what drew you to that initiative and that beneficiary of your expertise in mental health and care and well, healing. I left Moosini knowing that when I pursued education, it would be to work with children and youth, specifically Indigenous children and youth, 
And I studied child psychology, and then I went on to my master's to specifically look at working with Indigenous families and to become a psychotherapist. And during that time, all those years of study, I worked for various child welfare organizations across Ontario. And then I worked for the advocacy office in Toronto. And then I worked for Children's Mental Health in Muskoka. And so I got a really good idea of just what was out there in terms of the uh, supports and services available to youth. And I found myself working for a private company providing residential service because of the number of Indigenous youth they had in their care. As a private contractor, I had more ability to do to see youth more often. Children's mental health, there's a very long wait list and it's very excruciating to work in that environment sometimes. My heart goes to all the people working there and doing that good work, but the wait lists are so long. I was able to, to work more often with these youth and I was able to develop my own style and my own workshops and bring in elders. So there was a lot of flexibility and, and allowing to be innovative and in how I thought these I should be working with these youth. So my passion is working for, with these youth. And also as a granddaughter of residential school survivors, it was really important for me to help give back to the families and communities in some way. And so what better way than working directly with these youth? Because the number of youth in care is overwhelming. Half the youth in care across Canada are Indigenous. So we're really overrepresented. And so for me, it was how to support these youth. How can I give back to the families and the communities and the nation at large? And so I do a lot of that volunteer work that way with the uh, Pass the Feather, the Indigenous Art Collectives of Canada. We're all volunteers and it's this Remember Me ceremony on September 30th that we are working so hard to put together because we just want to facilitate healing on a bigger level. This episode is sponsored by Make Your Contribution Count for You, Me, We, a book written by Suzanne F. Stevens. It's time to act. Let this book be your compass to having a sustainable social impact while living your most meaningful life. Visit umiwi.ca slash book for more information. Thanks for listening. Now back to the podcast. Thank you for, for mentioning the Remember Me ceremony. It, and that's what it's called, correct? Yes. Yeah, and I just launched that because it's such an important one and why I wanted to have you today on September 1st is because of that ceremony. And do you want to just talk a little bit about that ceremony and what the objective is of that ceremony so that people are aware? So now that Canada is awakening to our story with the uncovering of all our babies in these burial grounds at residential schools across Canada, we finally have the support that we need from the, our non-Indigenous community. And it just seemed like the perfect time and with the launch of this now National Day for Truth and Reconciliation that we could bring everybody together to mourn and honor all the children that were lost in like a Remembrance Day ceremony. I'm very vocal that I look at the residential school era as an Indian war. There's more pieces to that. Residential schools was just one tactic, I would say, to the genocide that we've been through. And I, I really started researching and looking at it this way, especially when I worked with all these Indigenous youth that were hypervigilant due to trauma. And were sometimes I just in, in a situation in, in this limbic mode where they were like in warrior mode. And so I was really looking at um, this as war. And I'm like, Canadians don't realize the war that's been happening here. One in 26 Canadians that served in World War II died. One in 25 and 
indigenous youth that went to residential schools died. That's drastic. We have to really look at that and see that this is far more than just neglect. This is abuse. This is murder. There was horrific stories that our survivors have shared with us. And so I really need Canadians to start looking at the situation that my people have been in and are still going through. There's still a lot of um, oppression and systematic racism. And because we've had this lack of acknowledgement and lack of support, it's been so difficult to move forward in our healing. And so this Remember Me, a day of remembrance ceremony is bringing us all together to mourn for the loss of these youth and to support and offer healing to the survivors today and all their families that we all carry this legacy of trauma. And uh, so it's bringing us together in unity to do that honoring. We have a spirit walk planned, which is not a march or protest. It's just, can we all walk together and rise forward together Hmm. and uh, really peacefully and beautifully. So we have beautiful songs like tributes. It will be an emotional day and that's needed too, because we all need to come together and mourn together as a healer. I'm all about sacred tears and releasing and that part needed needing to happen before we can start to get into celebrating which we need to do too because we are celebrating that we are rising and we are reclaiming our power despite all of the attacks on us show great resilience and and still hold on to our ceremonies which we are just so honored to be able to to embrace today and to be able to share so this is not just for indigenous the indigenous community it's for the non-indigenous community as well to help bring them together to give them an opportunity to show support because there's a lot of people mourning collectively across Canada, but it's also to acknowledge there's a collective wound here that the non-Indigenous community carries. There's a lot of guilt and there's a lot of shame that I hear from a lot of the non-Indigenous community about what's happened here. So it's giving us a space to heal together. Yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more in regards to the feeling of shame and guilt and ignorance, (laughs) all of it. And I think it's a great opportunity to get together. So I've posted it below and by all means, we, we should get involved. You had made a really important point, which I've heard before, probably from you on our panel dialogue, is that 50% of children that are in care are indigenous children. Mm-hmm. Why is that? It is the trauma from residential schools. So residential schools were designed to break the bond between parent and child. That was the propaganda in order to assimilate us to the Eurocentric way of life. They thought the best way to do that was to break the bond between parent and child, remove the child completely from their family, community, and culture, and make them feel ashamed to be Indigenous. And so what I studied in school was the lack of parenting. So you have incredible trauma. You have children that become parents that have grown up in institutions that lack the parenting skills needed. And then these communities, they so lack the services and supports to help families through their healing. So youth are really overrepresented in care. And what we're also seeing is because there's still such racism and there's still such lack of support that it turns out to be more of an issue of neglect by the state or by the government who said that they would support us. And so it becomes a huge thing on state neglect as being the number one reason. 
that youth are in care. So it's not to say that abuse doesn't happen in, in homes. We know it does, and we are working and doing our best to heal our families. But the overall picture is that there's a crisis here and there's lack of support by the country. And so youth, some of the number one reasons they come into care is neglect and overcrowding. If you look at the situation on many of these reserves, there's lack of housing and there's lack of supports and services to help um, those in need. And so what happens is child welfare goes in and apprehends. And the other thing I was seeing is there's no real preventative services. I used to work with Niagara Child, Child News Services, and I'd compare that to when I worked up in Pictano. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the services in the South are just incredible. Just all of these different organizations coming together as a village should to support the youth and care there. Up north, they, it's pretty sad when you look at the situation. Some of those communities are in third world conditions. And if Canadians knew about the lack of water, about the lack of these basic human rights, I think there would be a lot more help going north. And it's isolated, it's flying communities, it's expensive to travel. So there's all these different factors at play here. And so I always want people to look at the larger puzzle. So why are we in this situation in the first place? Residential schools, look at that trauma and look like the last school just closed in 96. Look at all the generations of children that went through that. And now we're, we're seeing still the intergenerational trauma that's passed along. But again, it's the lack of parenting skills, the struggles in the homes and the struggles overall in the community and the government who said that they would help through these treaties and are not. There's so much there to unpack. I appreciate that you're talking about this here as well. It's so important. But the alarm bell that goes off in my mind and does with most social issues is we fix, we don't prevent. Or we don't fix and ignore <laughs> in the case within the Indigenous community. Prevention is where our time and money should go. And I'm a huge advocate of prevention. So to see that is such a gap here and now. I do understand without getting into a political debate too much at this point, because I'd rather focus on what your impact is, that finally there has been some movement in regards to the water being provided and a commitment mm -hmm. to that occurring. And there's some optimism that this time it will actually happen. Time remains to be seen. However, for someone like me who's traveled to developing countries, and when I found this out a few years ago, I couldn't believe mm -hmm. that was the case, mm -hmm. uh, that I have a developing regions in my own country. Mm -hmm. So that education will never get old, for mm -hmm. sure. So thank you also for sharing the child welfare perspective, because it's my understanding that also took you on your own healing path and to your calling. Far as your business, Redstone Snake Woman, who benefits from your services and that calling? So there's a few things that I do. We were speaking to these communities and a lot of Canadians wanting to know how to help. So the truth and reconciliation work that I do, 
is to individuals just looking what the, uh, like coming to me and wanting to know what their steps can be. So we break down truth, we break down reconciliation calls to action for each individual and what they can do personally within their homes and families, within their communities, and then the nation at large. So that's everybody. I, I get called into organizations and yeah, I just open my own workshops and let a lot of people sign up that way. That work is the most important to me because I really think that it's going to take each and every one of us to, to, to stand up to make the changes that are needed. People just, they want to help, but they just don't know how. So you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of ignorance, but there is a lot of education material out there now. So it's just helping people make those connections. And then with reconciliation, it's like looking at, okay, what do we need to reconcile within ourselves? There's a lot of healing work there. There's, we need to rebuild our trusting relationships together as community. And it's helping them move into their churches, their schools, and doing work to start moving us forward um, with reconciling our differences and doing what's needed from each and every one of us. So that's a lot of the work that I do. The Healing Lodge I created as a safe and sacred, affordable space where other people could step into their calling. Because we're each here with a sole purpose, and it's to be of service to each other. So it's helping people understand what is their medicine, why are they here, and now here's a platform to do that. And I started doing that in the child welfare field because as I was trying to bring in traditional people into the lives of these youth, I was just reaching out to the community and saying, hey, you're an incredible artist. Could you come in and provide that service, teach the youth about it? And then it also gives a job to somebody and then also the youth benefit and they get to learn, they get to reconnect with tradition and find a new way of coping. And so I'm always looking to help make people create jobs for themselves with what they really are passionate about. So the lodge is a space to do that. And we do a lot of ceremonies here and we have our healing forest here. The healing forest is a national healing forest through the truth and reconciliation. It was a call out from the national center. And so that's a space we've been working on to have benches for elders to be able to come into the forest. And we all know about forest bathing and the powers of reconnecting to nature. And so that's for residential school survivors and their families, but also anybody who wishes to visit us. So we have a lot of initiatives like that, open the doors to the community to come here to heal and to you know, encourage them of their own abilities to give back to the community. So it's a little domino effect, just trying to create a, a sacred space for people to find themselves and then figure out what it is that they need to do for the rest of us. We're in the same space, is trying to find people to also contribute, find their purpose, find meaning in their life. And usually when it's meaning and how I identify it is when you're uplifting somebody else, you'll find more meaning in your life. I think I'm going to have to schedule some time to come to you. And I look at the lodge. I looked at pictures of the lodge. It looks fabulous. And being out in the wilderness is my meditative movement. It is such a amazing thing. Now you were mentioning in regards to your workshops and providing those to families and organizations. Because this uh, Wisdom Exchange TV focuses very much on sustainable solutions, you get paid, of course, to go to organizations, but also when families want to understand what roles they can play in truth and reconciliation, they hire you to do that. Families? Yes. A lot of the people who come are coming from a space, from the heart space. They're just trying to figure out, okay, how do I raise my children to be more informed than I am? 
And when I speak to family work, it's usually those parents going back and now having books that they can bring into their homes or movies they can start introducing their families to and so on. What we're trying to do, I've, I've recently had other Indigenous organizations coming who are interested in what I do with Connor Homes and the youth in care to start delivering those services elsewhere. And what we're seeing is there's a lot of work being done for the youth in care, but not a lot of work helping the transition to going home. And so we want to start focusing more work on when the, before the youth go home, bringing the families into a safe space where they can start working on their relationship with each other and doing some trauma-based healing as well. And so we're going to start offering that. And I think that's the key. And some of the other organizations that I'm collaborating with, we want to get into the communities and start bringing back our traditional ways of healing, getting them set up that way so they can have what they need. Because right now, a lot of the communities are lacking that service. And the difficulty there is many communities are now Christian. So there's sometimes we just bump heads a little bit about a lot of us are traditional and believe so strongly in our traditional ceremonies. And we believe so greatly in the need for those ceremonies to get back and for our communities to reconnect. So that's the bigger picture work that we're trying to facilitate now. Yeah, and that's interesting that a lot of the communities are Christian. I, and I would challenge that a bit because the churches are empty. It's an interesting paradox. All of a sudden, we don't want to let go of our beliefs, but we're not going to be active on those beliefs either. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back to that question, though. I appreciate that you're helping families, but I'm also looking at your sustainability element. You get hired by organizations. They pay you, correct? Yes. Okay. If a family wants to learn ways to contribute and you're consulting with them on how to do that, do you make income from that as well? Normally all that work is honorarium basis. Okay. So what people can pay towards the healing forest is where I put that money. Okay, thank yeah. you. Just understanding though, that most of your your structure, because you're doing a lot of good things out there and sometimes mm -hmm. people get overwhelmed and say, okay, it's, how is she doing all of these great things? Mm -hmm. How is she sustaining herself? Mm -hmm. and, and I appreciate you bringing that up because I do a lot of work by volunteer and there's a lot of expectation from the organizations and communities that Indigenous people should come in and share this knowledge for free. And I've been to hospitals recently, was at a hospital to offer a smudging ceremony for a patient there. And I was very honored to, to help, but I chatted with them. I said, you need to create a sacred space for this because there isn't one here yet. And you really need to pay elders to come in to do this. We, and most elders will want an honorarium. And that's the same for, for schools. And there's two thoughts on this. When it comes to sacred ceremonies, there's a thought those shouldn't be paid for. And traditionally, what you would give is tobacco. And we still offer tobaccos in our exchange today. But traditionally, there would be some sort of trade. The economy has changed today. So I believe some things I'm not comfortable with accepting money for. There's a belief there, and I support that. I said, but we're in a day and an age where I can't give tobacco to my elders to put in their gas tanks or to pay their mortgages. So I always pay my elders, the healers that I hire to come and work with these youth, the artists and everybody, I, I make a money payment. And if they want that to be income or honorary or whatever is them. 
but that's the that's the economy of today we need money Traditionally, I'm always giving tobacco too to honor. That's always been our traditional way of exchange too. When people come to me and they need help, sometimes, especially with some of the work that I do, I'm not comfortable receiving an income for it. And I'll just say, please give me a donation. And that goes into creating the healing forest space that I'm working so hard to, to create for the community. But most times I am very comfortable at this point in my life to say, this is my services. This is what I'm offering. This is what they're worth. And so that always brings up that question of worth, right, too. And I think a lot of us have struggled with that. I know for myself as a businesswoman, it's really hard to put a price on things. But I've come into a lot, myself a lot in terms of Redstone Snake Woman. Their services and there's programs that I've created and I've spent years investing money into to learn and educate myself on. And it, it is important because mm-hmm. it, for the entrepreneur, it's been extremely challenging and we still need to justify our wage. And it seems yeah. almost there's an expertise that you are bringing and there's years and years of education that you have. Mm-hmm. And that's why you've achieved it. And I appreciate mm-hmm. you saying there's certain things you'll do but we also have to come up against challenging those expectations. Yeah. Just because you expect not to pay for this service doesn't mean you shouldn't pay for this service. Yeah, I don't receive funding. I'm an entrepreneur here, so sole proprietor. And when I have my kids, I'm single mom with my kids. So I have to pay all the bills. Yeah. 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 And now, you do focus on calling and and create space for people to find their calling. How important do you think it is for people to actually find their calling? And what advice do you have for them to do that? I think it's utmost important. I want people to be happy about what they're doing. Like, I think they say, if you love what you do, it doesn't feel like you're going to work. And I can understand what that means. Now I feel sometimes I overwork myself. (laughs) because I'm so busy sometimes, but I love what I do. And I just, I feel what I do is extremely important. And that's why I'm so invested and so why I'm so passionate about it. And I want everybody to feel that way about what they dedicate most of their day to doing. So I always say there's, there's healing. For me, it was a lot of healing journeys to come into myself and to remember who I am and why I'm here. So I love providing those ceremonies, but I just say to people, if you want to know what your calling is, what do you love doing most? What are you most passionate about? And then how can you bring that into a job for yourself? How do you make an income with that? So it's getting innovative. It's helping people envision the life that they imagine for themselves and that they can do it. And I speak to that a lot in my dream catcher workshops. I'm always talking about you're weaving your dreams together. You're setting that intention out there. And, and I want people to just feel really good about why they're here and what they're doing. I think that's what we all need to, in order to thrive. Absolutely. I can appreciate that. And finding your calling also can be overwhelming. I've had conversations with people that say, I can't find what my purpose is. I can't find how to create meaning. And that can be very daunting and exhausting and stressful when in actuality finding your calling in the job as you say to explore it and is supposed to be rewarding do you have any advice for those people that feel that it's overwhelming to actually find their calling heal everything comes down to healing i'm constantly engaged in my healing and 
as you heal, you release all the the stuff that you've been doing because you think you should, or someone told you to, or you were, a lot of us do things that we've developed this belief system that we should be doing certain things, or we're only worthy of certain things. And so a lot of the work that I do is challenging people on their limited beliefs, on the negative thoughts and emotions that they carry. And as we work through all of those things and we come back to who we are, we're better able to determine exactly what it is that we truly want in life. Too often we're living up to the expectations of others. So it comes down to healing and creating boundaries and really just investing in yourself and your self-love. And then you're better able to really connect to what is it exactly that little spark and that little spark in me, what turns that into a flame. And so I think it comes down to our healing. Taking all the work that you do between the volunteerism and within your business some of it's heavy work. And when you're focusing on healing, do you ever find that it weighs you down? And, and if it does, how do you manage to present your best self in those circumstances? I think that comes down to boundaries as well. I remember my medicine man saying something to me that his grandfather had said to him, and it said, I give you permission to disappoint others. I loved that. <laughs> I'm like, I needed that permission too. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because I'm really good at that. So <laughs> I'm very excited. <laughs> and I do. Sometimes I'm like, I, 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 it just me, I take forever sometimes getting back to emails because I just got so much going on and I'm trying always to be professional, but I have to really create boundaries where I'm in healer mode now. I'm in mama mode. Now I just need time for me. So it's a really balancing act of being able to stay grounded. So it really comes down to boundaries because it can get heavy. And, and when I, I have that client in my space for that moment, I just give it my all. But when they leave, I stay in touch. I see how they're doing. And usually, usually I have repeat clients that come back again and again, but I have to only just do what I can in that moment. And I think when I was younger, I took too much on. I took too much on. And I remember going at the end of the day, people make their own choices. Anyway, you can give us, you can do as much as you can give as much advice you can. And I was like, Oh gosh. And, and then it was, I just got a smack with humility and said, Oh my God, everyone is on their own journey. I really, I stopped being judgmental and let go of all of that. And was just, everyone has their own journey. Just hold a space of unconditional love and grace and allow people to come in into. So it's just, for me, it's just trying to create the safety and a place of sacredness for people to come in, do what they need to do. And then they go, and then that's off they go. So it's, yeah, I think, I think if that all makes sense, that's how I've been able to stay rooted. I spent a lot of time outside with my feet on the ground and that, that means everything as well. And it's great advice, boundaries, for sure. You have several beneficiaries of your work. Your volunteer work is, is youth. Who else benefits from the work you do more in your business of Redstone Snake Woman? A lot of people just come out here to use the space. I have a lot of women, especially, that are moving in and out of the space. Sometimes they just need somewhere to come from tea. It feels like it's been halted a bit, quite a bit with COVID, but now that we're opening our doors again, it's been wonderful. When I first started running the lodge, I told women they could pay less if they helped me care for the space. 
when we looked at rental fees and we'll bring this way down, you can come in, you can help me care for it. And then we created this little membership system and they ended up, I think a lot of them feel like they benefited from this, the sacredness of the space that way too. And a lot of women just come and go and I want it to always feel that way. I want it to feel like a place that they could just sneak into the, the forest when they have time without needing to ask me, just get back there and, and do what they need to do. A young lady came by the other day. I wasn't here. And she says, I just need a near forest too. She had a, a duck that she needed. I work with bird medicine. So everyone knows me and, and my birds and, and the plucking and ceremonies I do. So there's a lot of birds that end up in the forest and she needed to come in and bury and spend time there and honor those feathers and whatever story she had with it. And I love being a space for that. That's with Redstone St. Clement. And just a lot of the work that I do is with Soul Space. It's, it's a group of us that came together to help and support the frontline workers the, that are down working with the homeless and those struggling with addiction and volunteering to, to be a person to run healing circles, uh, grief support circles that they, the people downtown Ottawa have been burning out with this pandemic, with the amount of overdoses and the struggles that are happening down there that not a lot of people talk about. The other side of this pandemic is addiction rates are sky high and suicide rates are sky high. And there's a lot of people struggling. So just wanting to support and offer services, healing circle services to those workers. And I've recently started to work directly with, with Indigenous women that are homeless and struggling with addictions too. So when you started your organization, what did you see as the biggest opportunity for Redstone Snake Women, mm -hmm. I just wanted to to be someone that people could to go to for consultation or speaking or whatever workshop it was. I just wanted to inspire them to come into who they are. A lot of people come into the lodge and they say, oh my God, this feels like home. I had a veteran come in and just said this was the first lodge he felt he didn't need to look over his shoulder while he was in. I work really hard to keep the energy here soft and nurturing, a mothering, because I feel like we just, all of us just need a home, a place to feel like we belong. And so I'm really just wanting to help people come home to themselves and, and reconnect. There's a loneliness that I think everybody felt during the pandemic. It started to bring up that wound in so many of us. And I've wanted this for myself is not to be lonely in my own company. It's not just to need me put that self-care self-love first because when I'm in that space I'm the best mom and I'm the best healer and I'm the best <laughs> version of myself to be able to reach out to the larger community mm -hmm. so I was just trying to be very innovative and in ways to to reach people so I started coming up with different workshops I work with bird medicine and a lot of people come to me wanting to understand the different types of bird medicine and so it's helping people understand the medicine and gifts of, of nature. And a lot of people love my dream catcher workshops. And that's about dreaming the life you've imagined for yourself and starting to really create intention and vision boards and how to reach your goals. Right. So it was just, I was just wanting a space where I felt like I could try these new ideas and that gave a space for other people to be a little creative and, and with what they wanted to be able to offer the world as well. Why? is having a social impact so important to you? I'm all about community. 
the indigenous way, the Western versus indigenous worldview is very different. And we are a very collective people. We're very matriarchal. We're very much about offering holistic services, reaching the larger community. I believe it takes a village to raise a child. And I want to start seeing these social shifts where we all start behaving that way again. Everybody's playing stranger and bystander to one another, and we can't make the change that this world needs that way. We have to start seeing each other as kin, and that's our traditional way of looking at the world. We say all our relations. That's the, what my lodge is named, Nisaweni Wakamuganak. All our relations recognizes you are my relative, you're my sister, so is that rock, so is that tree, so is that plant. When we start to treat each other better and the environment better, when we look at each other from that powerful mm -hmm. viewpoint. Absolutely. So we're going to end very shortly, but I'm going to give you some what I like to call rapid fire questions, just to mix it up, Jenny. Fun. <laughs> and first thought, best thought. And um, if you don't have one, you can pass, but give it a second and see if something comes up. What is one thing you wish you knew prior to engaging down the path of particularly redstone snake woman? One thing I wish I knew earlier I think, I think I wish I, I knew my worth more. I think I could mm -hmm. say that for me. And I think uh, with a lot of my clients, that's the first thing we work on is self-worth. This investment into yourself first and foremost. I think I was always trying to do what other people thought was needed and not relying on my own intuition and not believing in myself as, as greatly as I should. Best piece of advice you've ever received? I think I shared that one and that was the, uh, I give you permission. It's okay to disappoint other people. And I'm learning that comes back to their own wish issues and the things that they need to take ownership and accountability for. Yeah, I can only do so much. And if I give it my best, I feel pretty proud at the end of the day. So I have to just release the, the weight of people's expectations and just do what I'm able to do and that be enough. Great. Which of your strengths do you rely on most to have the success and impact you have achieved? I think my strength is my connection to the earth. I have to stay grounded. I have to stay balanced. And otherwise, I, when I look back at, at the challenges that I've had in my life, now I'm able to more quickly move through obstacles with my healing work. And I call her the number one healer. So spending time in nature, that energy exchange that she offers us is very grounding. And I utilize that. I utilize that with my feet on the land or my hands in the dirt. I also utilize that with grounding sheets, a yoga grounding sheet, anything that connects to the earth energy. And I think that's something we all need to really become more aware of because we're literally killing ourselves by having such a disconnection with her. Mm -hmm. Which beneficiary do you think needs the most investment of time, research, and money? Well, the work that I've been doing has been really to support Indigenous women. We do that with the collective. We've been uh, creating websites and, and trying to create job opportunities for Indigenous women. And, I, and a lot of my work to support Indigenous women is because I really believe in, in sacred feminine rising and that uh, we need to get back to being a matriarchal society and we need to bring heart back and our women are the leaders and the change makers and uh, the warriors of today. Mm -hmm. My concern is the indigenous men. I don't mm -hmm. see the same services and supports for them and I know they, they really struggle. So I would like to start seeing more people reaching out to them and looking at prisons and jails and corrections and the justice systems. 
our two most precious resources are our children and the land. So a lot of focus needs to be there always. So being the village that we are, I guess there's many different things that we need to look at. To your point about the Indigenous men, this is what happens when pendulum swings, is someone, and I often call, uh, talk about consequences of your contribution. Mm -hmm. And often when you contribute one place, and right now a lot of attention is being put on women in, in, in general, mm -hmm. and intersectional women, and which is Indigenous Black women, uh, white women, women, all women. And as a result, there, there is that fear that men are being ignored. And my whole thing is there, there is, there's a pendulum swing. It will come back when we see equitable environments, when people are treated, then it will come back, but we have to push until that occurs. And that's truly in the indigenous community as well. That's, that needs to happen. We're finally having the conversations. Okay. We've talked about men for years. I'm concerned about Indigenous men as well. Mm -hmm. And they need the attention as well. So hopefully we will meet, uh, interview someone who... And is, we will get there yeah. because of Sacred Feminine Rising. Yeah, Once that's right. Once we get that there, then the men will have the sports they need because the women will ensure it. We're the caregivers. Yeah, You're uh, my sister from another mother. <laughs> <laughs> so who, with that, who is the greatest female influence in your life? I always say my mama, because my mama raised me. She's just a beautiful, loving soul. So I always have to share my gratitude for her. And right. I, I don't have to be a child psychotherapist to realize the importance of that connection and that relationship, but it sure makes me more grateful for her. But Cindy Blackstock, everybody should know her. She is, she is a wise, strong, graceful woman who does such advocacy is such an activist, does such great work for Indigenous youth and care, such as taking on the government. And I have the utmost respect for her. I've been to many of her speaking engagements. She is so inspirational in the way she speaks. She just pulls you in because she speaks from the heart and she talks mm. to the heart. And I found that in extremely inspiring. And I felt what her, her mission was. And I'm like, I'm with you. I'm on that same path. And so a lot of the work that I do is because of her. And I'm just so grateful, grateful for everything she represents. Your words do have power because you mentioned her during our panel dialogue with the Indigenous community. And of course, I immediately after looked her up and was reading about her and yeah, very in impressive. So I hope to see her speak someday. What three values do you live? Humility. I am like, I'm trying my best to just wake up each morning with gratitude and just live more humbly. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I think my path is, and what I encourage everyone else to follow is, this, is to walk gracefully and when we look at humility, it comes with just accepting, being able to accept everything that comes and finding the medicine in it. And so I'm always trying to, to live that way. I believe in unconditional, non-judgmental love. And I'm just trying to be that space, trying to receive it, and I'm trying to give it always. And values. And it's, what would be my third live respectfully. We can have our differences with each other and that'd be okay as long as we respect them. Yeah. And I think when we live in more, a lot of people struggle with that one. 
because differences sometimes challenge their ideas and their faith and everything else and it can cause can cause issues and so i think when we try to just be respectful that we all have are allowed to have our own values and our own ways and our own religions and everything else that we coexist more harmoniously together and that's the goal thank you jenny shawanak yay you said it right <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your heart and your insight. And I'm going to come back to you in one moment with another question. But you can subscribe to Wisdom Exchange TV, everyone on this call. If you only caught part of the live episode, it will be on Jenny's exclusive page. So you'll receive each new interview notification in your inbox as well. Please share this interview by going to the share button located on Jenny's page. And the interview is available on podcasts and video, so whatever you prefer. If you know someone who has significant social impact in business, education, civic service, or advocacy, let us know. Visit the guest tab on wisdomexchangetv.com and submit information. And then our research team will take it from there. And if you want to have more meaning in your life and want to collaborate with women who are driving social impact, please join the You, Me, We community and find out how to connect with people like Jenny and other people having a social impact as we build this group of women that are sharing and learning from each other and changing the world. Jenny, do you have any words of wisdom for the audience regarding making a conscious contribution to society? As you were bringing up the social impact again, I'm like, we, and who's the child psychotherapist from you studies attachment coming out, we are meant to, to connect with one another. We're meant to relate. And I think when we just talk about making conscious efforts, it's always looking at the community at large and just trying to truly value our relationships. And that when we're looking at helping, it's gotta be wide. It's gotta be, we can't do this where we, we try to act like we're separate from it all. When we're just one community that's extremely interconnected. I always call it the eternal web of life. And yeah, I think we just need to be open more to this idea that we are social beings and everybody around us is has a role and that has to be respected and honored and we need to work together more more in a more loving way amen to that i know that's a christian term but let's that's okay <laughs> or namaste to that yeah. or how do i how would i in that in an indigenous way we say ahoy a lot Ahoy. Ahoy. Yeah, Ahoy. I agree with that. that. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. Until next time, make your contribution count for you, me, we. Miigwech. This episode is sponsored by Make Your Contribution Count for You, Me, We, a book written by Suzanne F. Stevens. It's time to act. Let this book be your compass to having a sustainable social impact while living your most meaningful life. Visit youmiwi.ca slash book for more information. Thank you for joining us for the YouMiWi Amplified, Women Leaving Social Impact in Their Communities and Beyond podcast. For more interviews, visit youmiwi.ca slash podcast. Until next time, make your contribution count for you, your organization, and your community.